Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 192 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Valeria Gray. She owns Southeast Parkinson's Speech Services, LLC, where she provides maintenance speech therapy services. She also owns Total Body Cognition, empowering those living with chronic conditions to minimize symptoms and thrive through nutrition, physical activity, and education. Valeria holds certifications in SLP, personal training, brain health training, behavior change, and health coaching. A member of Allied Team Training for Parkinson's and an active volunteer for Parkinson's Foundation, Valeria has a particular interest in wellness for people living with Parkinson's disease. At Wellstar Kenistone Outpatient Neuro Rehabilitation Clinic, she provides clinical services, supervises grad students, and co-hosts a monthly Parkinson's support group. Her specialty certifications include LSBT Loud, LSBT Loud for Life, Speak Out, MDTP, and MDSIMP. As a mentor for the Medical SLP Collective, Larry assists SLPs in providing evidence-based care in the areas of Parkinson's disease, motor speech disorders, and cognition. Valeria also serves as the co-chair of the Diversity Collaborative Committee within the Medical SLP Collective, where she hosts weekly support calls and serves as an advisor on increasing cultural responsiveness within the organization. And you may have heard of her as Libby. That is her nickname that she goes by. So if you've heard of Libby, um, her formal name is Valeria. So I hope you guys all really enjoy this episode with her. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Libby. Hi, how are you doing? I am wonderful. How are you? Good. I'm excited to be here. I am so happy you are here. Oh, I'm so happy you're here. Okay. Um, Tell the people who you are. 
I'm Valeria Gary on social media. You might know me as Libby. I'm a speech language pathologist. I've been practicing since 1990, which is a little while ago. I've worked pretty much in every adult-based setting that there is. I started off in nursing homes. I did a mobile MBS company. I've taught universities, acute care, inpatient rehab. I'm an outpatient now, which is my absolute love. I love it. I love it. All right. So what are we going to talk about today, Libby? We're going to talk about Parkinson's disease, particularly working on dysarthria associated with Parkinson's disease. I'm mostly going to focus on ways that we can go beyond the speech and voice drills for our patients with Parkinson's. And that would include advocacy, support groups, and adding movement and divided attention tasks to our speech work. Okay, beautiful. All right. So where should we get started? Well, oftentimes people ask me that very same question, like, how do I get started? And I would say our training does prepare us to work with motor speech disorders. Uh, we might not necessarily get Parkinson's specific training, but there's lots of ways to get that type of training. I'd like to refer people to places like the MedSLP Collective, to MedBridge. ASHA has a ton of resources for working with Parkinson's disease. There are various Parkinson's foundations. There's the Parkinson Foundation, there's the Michael J. Fox Foundation, there's the Davis Finney Foundation. And again, all of them are a wealth of information. Um, in fact, it's almost overwhelming how much information there is to learn. Yeah, yeah. I'm a hands-on person, so I really like doing the actual coursework that's like LSVT Loud and the Parkinson's Voice Project Speak Out, because that is, you know, it's like a hands-on type of training program. They explain the hows and whys of everything, tell you exactly how to do those therapies. And that really resonates well with me. So I also recommend that. Awesome. So Libby, I want to ask you, do you do dysphagia therapy with Parkinson's or are you strictly motor speech? I do both. I do dysphagia therapy. I do some cognitive communication most of what I do is motor speech just because of the way our clinic is set up. We have a Parkinson's program. And so in the afternoons, that, that's our whole afternoon is doing um, LSVT or speak out. Ooh. All right. Well, um, what got you interested in this population? How did you you know, kind of decide this was going to be your niche? When I started with my current position in outpatient, that was in 2015, they already had the LSVT program. So I figured I wanted to be a part of that. It sounded interesting. And I got the certification and I really just enjoy doing it. And I don't know if it's because it's so concrete. I, before my love was aphasia, like that's my first love when it comes to speech pathology. And I still love that. However, I find that working with people with Parkinson's and working on motor speech things, I can just really see the difference in their productions, like sometimes just day one. And I have like these measurements, I can say exactly like you went from 70 decibels to 77. Uh, it's rewarding for me. It's rewarding for the patients. Um, absolutely love the people that I work with. So I started doing uh, Parkinson's uh, type therapy more and more. And then I had an opportunity to go to the Allied Team Training for Parkinson's coursework by the Parkinson Foundation. And that was the one, the course that just made me say, oh, yes, this is it. I am absolutely all in. I'm going to learn everything I can. From there, I started a support group, taking information I had learned at that particular course, and just one opportunity just led to another. You know, I do volunteer work and then I, I teach you know, classes at Parkinson's gym. So it all just kind of came together um, just based on me taking that initial step to take some coursework and see how it how it would go. It's so, fu it's so funny. Not, not that that's funny. I think it's so funny because that's sort of how I developed my love for fees. It was just like one thing after another. And I was like, this is my jam. This is what I want to do. I, yeah. So. It's cool how we just find our little niches. So. Yes. It's like, like I say, when you know, you know. Yes, yes, yes. 
when the idea for creating a support group first came to me, I went to my manager and I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. If I wanted to do like a loud for life or if I wanted a support group, I, I knew that we needed to do something for our patients because we would see them four times a week for four weeks and then poof, that was it. And we might not see them again for another three to six months. And knowing what I know about Parkinson's, being that it's a progressive disease, I knew that we needed to do more in order to help our, the patients once they finished our services. Around the same time, I got my certification as a health coach. So I started learning you know, to get beyond my speech pathology box and look at more like the whole person approach. I met up with a couple of therapists that I worked with, and one of them was an occupational therapist who said she had always wanted to do a support group for care partners. And so we were like, well, this is perfect. So we came up with a group and I run the group side that has the people with Parkinson's and she does the care partners. We started that, I think this is our third anniversary coming up. Right now we're doing it virtually, but um, we're going to be going back to in-person in August. So, you know, we keep the group separate so that the care partners can really go over like coping strategies and have an opportunity to discuss things that they want to discuss. And then the people with Parkinson's, sometimes we have guest speakers come in, sometimes we'll pick a topic and have a discussion about it. When people ask me you know, how to start a support group, I know that somewhere out there, there's probably this really very organized way to start a support group where you get all your ducks in a row and everything else. But the approach I took was, I just said, I want to start one. And I had a place and we had some people we had access to. So we just did it and didn't know what we were doing necessarily. We, we knew we were having two separate groups and would have these discussions. The expectation initially, I assumed, because we mostly see males with Parkinson's, I assumed that I was going to have you know, this group of men. And then my, um, my colleague, Selena, thought she was going to have mostly wives in her group uh, for the care partner. So she had kind of planned a lot of things based on that. However, the opposite happened. So I guess because you know, women tend to be more social creatures and more likely to attend a support group, mostly I have women in my group and it's mostly the husbands that are in the, the care partner group. Again, you know, we, I mean, we never could have predicted that, but we just rolled with it and changed, you know, some of the things that perhaps we were, you know, ways we're going to address it during the group. But yeah, just find a place, find some people, start talking. That's how you do I it. I love it. I love it, Libby. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll say it's easy to find guest speakers because, you know, people who are passionate about whatever they do are always willing to come and talk to the group. We've had attorneys come in, we had dietitians come in, you just name it. That's, that's a good thing. Good, good. You know, my favorite slogan is action breeds clarity. So I love that you just just got to work and started talking. So yeah. awesome. <laughs> awesome. So you, you have here therapy is not just for the patient and it's not just about being loud. Absolutely. In LSVT, the focus is loud and speak out the focus is intent. So I adopt a lot of what I do. Even if I'm not doing either one of those programs, I still take those principles with me into the treatment. People think initially that is only just about being loud, but it's about being intentional about with everything that you're doing. And to be intentional requires divided attention. If I'm going to speak with a loud, clear voice, and I'm going to think about what you're saying to me, and I'm going to respond, I have to be able to divide my attention. And that is something that people with Parkinson's can have difficulty with. Part of the therapy is educating the care partners, the family members, et cetera, because sometimes we'll hear family members say, oh, you know, they get lazy when they get home. They don't use their loud voice. And I have to remind them that is 
not so much that they're necessarily lazy, but if someone's watching TV and then you ask them a question that they've got to shift their attention from that television to the question you asked, think about what you've asked, formulate that response, and remember to use the loud voice. That's a lot. And that takes a lot of practice. And of course, family members don't know that all these things have to take place. They just say, you know, oh, I, they're loud in therapy and we get home and they're not loud. If we can help the page, the family members to cue someone to know how to cue for that loudness, to remove those distractions, to be mindful that it might take someone a, a moment to shift their attention or to process what they're hearing, then those conversations at home tend to go better. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. All right. Health literacy is an area that I've really recently gotten into. One of the ways I like to start those conversations is asking someone, what do you already know about Parkinson's disease? And what do you want to know about Parkinson's disease? Some people will come to me and they've done all the research. They've already started going to support groups. They have a wealth of knowledge. And some people know they just been told they have this condition. They don't know anything about it. They're afraid to find out too much about it because you know, they think that um, it means that they're going to have this sudden you know, de decline in function and, and die in the next you know, month or so. So people come to us with different expectations, different amounts of knowledge. Finding out you know, what they know helps so that I'm not giving information that they already know. I can you know, add information. And then finding out what someone wants to know is really important because we don't want to overwhelm people. So there's a lot of information out there about Parkinson's disease, and we don't want to overwhelm people with too much information. And we know some people really only want to know just like where I am now, what do I need to know in this moment? I don't want to know about what could happen in the future. I keep a huge binder full of Parkinson's-related resources in my office. We have things from, the, you know, again, the Parkinson's Foundation, the Davis Finney Foundation, the American Parkinson's Disease Association. All of them have resources for the newly diagnosed. And those resources are, you know, written in a way that they're not intended to scare someone. They're letting people know how to start taking action from day one, like starting an exercise program. And if I'm doing a reading task with someone in therapy, then I'll ask them, would you like to read about some things you can do to help manage your symptoms? If they say yes, then we'll pull out an article about how exercise helps um, with the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. I have handouts as far as nutrition, mental health, yeah, like where to go to look for things. And those are things, yeah, again, I incorporate into therapy. So it's not that I'm just having like this lecture with the patient. I'm actually having them to either look the information up or to read the information or to retell it as, as part of the, the therapy that I'm doing. I, I just love everything you just said there because I think I think that's so important for everything that we do <laughs> and, and not just Parkinson's. I think there are so many times that I, I love the way you, you phrase that about asking, what do you know? How much do you want to know? Things like that, because I think that just gives us such valuable insight in, into, you know, kind of how things are going to go with the patient. I know there's so many times that people just tell me so many things about my son or things like that. I'm like, I kind of just don't want to hear it. I just want to, <laughs> I just want to hear, you know, what, what, you know, you think the you know best plan of care is. So I, I love that. I think that's a beautiful way to frame that. Yeah. I find it helpful before I would just, kind of throwing information at people and then I would get the deer in the headlights look. So I, you know, over time I learned to, to adopt a different approach. Yes. Mm -hmm. The health literacy thing is also important because, you know, part of our ASHA code of ethics is that we are to use every resource that we can in order to help our patients. And sometimes people feel like, oh, they're overstepping their boundaries. If they start going into things like nutrition and exercise, 
But if that doctor has, you know, in their plan of care, if they've said that the patient should engage in exercise, that they should, you know, a balanced diet, et cetera, we're not diagnosing, we're not, you know, prescribing this exercise or these diet programs. We're helping people to understand them because just having a, a doctor's thing saying, eat a plant-based diet, for some people, that's not enough information for them to actually make those real changes that they need to make on a day-to-day basis. I love it. Um, so this kind of ties in with our next point about advocating for underserved populations. Yes. So when we talk about underserved populations, that's a large group of individuals that can be based on geographic location, race, socioeconomic status, sex, gender identity, etc. There's a difference between health disparities and health care disparities. So when we look at health disparities, we're looking at the difference in, a, in the disease prevalence or the outcomes within a group. When we're looking at health care disparities, we're looking at the differences in the quality of health care that are not related to that individual person, but is related to bias, prejudices, et cetera. It's really important for us to make sure that we are aware that these things exist, because if we're truly serving our, our patients, it's not enough for us to say, you need to get a lot of exercise every day. Do these voice exercises twice a day. And if you don't do it, that means you're non-compliant. Because there are a lot of barriers that people might face in order to do the things that we're recommending. When it comes to exercise, you know, do they have access to a gym? Do they live in a neighborhood that's safe for them to do those daily walks that we might recommend? When we talk about doing the voice exercises, some people need another person there to support them through that exercise to help them to monitor if they're being loud enough. Or if we recommend using an app to measure loudness, do they have access to that technology? Do they know how to use that technology? Um, the, um, one of the ASHA news um, letters from the Special Interest Division um, number 15, that's the gerontology, uh, had a really good uh, tutorial in February of this year. And that was by Ellison Jacobs. And they really went to a lot of great detail about healthcare disparities and health disparities and what our role as speech pathologists would be for that. So again, a lot of this can be tied into our plan of care. If someone is wanting to learn technology and they've got access to it, but they haven't used it before, we can teach them how to set reminders, for example, for their medication, because that's one thing with Parkinson's is extremely important to get each medication on time at the exact time every day. So I've, I've taught a lot of people, I've learned how to use Android systems, Apple systems um, to, to do those type of things. I've incorporated into tasks so as far as like, like looking for classes. Let's see if we can find some free exercise classes within a certain number of miles of your house and going online and looking for those courses. Because if, if we don't do it, then the question is, so who is going to do that for, for our patients? And we don't want them coming back every three months with bigger and bigger declines because they did not know how to access services or didn't have the, the tools that they needed. Also with um, disparities, a lot of the foundations are have grant programs. And what I love about the grant programs is that they often look out for programs that are trying to reduce healthcare and health disparities. So for example, um, Southern University received a grant from Parkinson's Voice Project, and they're offering free telehealth using Speak Out to underserved populations. If you, you know, are near a university, that might be an option for people who you know, either don't have that um, insurance or they've exhausted their insurance benefits. 
looking for the grant recipients for Parkinson's Foundation and Parkinson's Voice Project, you know, look through those recipients and see like who's offering re reduced price services or free services, because again, that's access that someone can have that they wouldn't necessarily have any other way. If someone has access to technology, Speak Out and LSVT, there are ways to watch those videos online. So for example, Speak Out does every day, Monday through Friday, they do, they run through the exercises and that's through Facebook. LSVT is um, doing some video series with the Parkinson's Foundation on their YouTube channel. And again, if someone doesn't have someone to walk them through those exercises, but they have access, they have a smartphone or they have access to the internet, make sure they know how to access those exercises and do them along with them, make it part of the, the homework. Can, can you talk a little bit, Libby, about the process of getting Speak Out in your facilities or becoming a Speak Out provider? I think some people... Some people have found it very easy to do, and some people have had difficulty with that path. So I didn't know if you'd share a little bit about that. Yes. Well, what I did was I took the course. We already had an LSVT program before I started. With Speak Out, I took the coursework, and then I made sure that my manager and our marketing person knew about it. I did like a little brochure to explain what it is. I talked about the difference between LSVT and Speak Out, you know, who's appropriate for it. And I would say that because we do big and loud, that's still our, our main program, but I've been able to get speak out just basically when someone comes in, I talk to the patient and say, well, you know, here's an option for you. you know, can you come in three times a week, for example, and this is the way that the program works. And that's how, how it's been done. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Nothing fancy. I just started doing it. Yep. I love it. All right. So therapy with people with Parkinson's can be a lot of fun. Sometimes it might feel repetitive because of all the, the standard exercises that we have to do. But when we're working on maintaining that loudness and that speech clarity during functional activities, we can bring a lot of our different materials into that. Again, divided attention is an important component. Being able to maintain the speech clarity while either doing something physical or while thinking about something is really what the focus is. So I'll tell patients, we're going to be doing some things. Some of these might be, hopefully, are very personally relevant. Some of them might seem kind of random. Your job is to maintain your speech clarity or your loudness, maintain your intent. So even if you get distracted, you're not sure if your answer is right, it really doesn't matter if that answer is perfectly correct. As long as you maintain the intent, keep your voice loud. When it comes to doing like a dual motor task, for example, walking and talking, that's something that we'll do around our clinic. We'll have someone walking, making sure they're using the big movements with their arms, taking big steps, having a conversation as we walk around. I don't do that with everyone because some of my patients, I really don't want them talking when they're walking because they have a significant fall risk. But if someone can, can do both things safely, then we'll do that. As far as seated exercises, we have done things that are based on, there's, um, there's an exercise program called Ageless Grace. And Ageless Grace is a, a brain health training program that's completely seated and is based on the, the principles of neuroplasticity. So I'll kind of borrow from there. Um, an example of an activity might be moving the hands and the feet at the same time and counting from one to eight. And so first we're just counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, moving our hands and feet. Then I might throw in, okay, we're going to clap on four and clap on eight. Stay loud with your counting. And it's like one, two, three, five, six, seven. And then we might go backwards and we're, we're counting backwards from eight down to one. And I might say, 
you know, clap on seven and snap your fingers on two. No one's expected to completely be perfect with that. That's the whole idea is that you're not going to be perfect with it, but you're making your brain work and you're practicing moving things, thinking and maintaining the, the loudness. Uh, there's an old school game that we used to do where you slap your thigh, then you clap your hand and then you snap your fingers. So it's like that slap, clap, snap, snap. That can be done. Let's say if you're doing something like categories, maybe you're doing single word activities, you can, they can coordinate only talking when they're snapping their fingers and remembering the rhythm of slap the thigh, clap the hand, snap the finger, snap the finger. Catching a ball. I do a lot with balls, either rolling the ball, throwing a ball. And yeah, you know, this is where sometimes like the workbooks do come in handy is if you need just a bunch of just, you know, single word type of activities, it might be like a sentence completion or a category task. But it's like, I'll start the sentence while I'm tossing the ball, the patient catches it. And at the same time, they give their response. And they have to do that again with their loud, clear speech. And then maybe as they're tossing it to me, they're saying something else. If I want to challenge a little memory a little bit, I might say, okay, if I toss you the ball with my right hand, name a state. If I toss it with my left hand, name a food. If I use both hands in the middle, name, give me a person's name. Now they've got to remember what's what, they've got to catch it, they've got to keep up with you know, what's happening. So it's a fun way to work on the, the loudness. Just make sure that the patient remembers that their focus is the loudness on that, that you know, whether or not they catch the ball perfectly, it, it doesn't matter. Or if they say the same thing in a category over and over, you know, for the most part, that doesn't matter because we're really just trying to keep that, that loudness and intent going. If someone is able to walk around, we have a therapy garden where I work. So we'll go out to the garden and there's usually tasks to do like, you know, like um, with deadheading flowers, whatever. I don't know anything about gardening, but we'll go out there and play around and, and there and talk while we're out outside. That gives the dynamic of being outdoors. So now you have to be louder because we're outside. There's background noise all the time, traffic or construction equipment that gives a good challenge. We have a kitchen in our facility, so maybe doing a kitchen task and talking, which is something that someone might be um, typically doing at home is another way to, to address those. Then when it comes to divided attention, as far as cognition and talking, there are a lot of ways that you can do that too. I love it when someone has an area of life that they're really passionate about. It makes life so much easier. Like if they're really into cars or really into crafts, it's easy to come up with tasks like, okay, describe how you do such and such while you're doing something with your hands or um, describe, you know, all the different parts for this particular type of motor. I'll give you a word, you know, that's a vocabulary item for your hobby. Tell me about it. And then we can incorporate that into other things. Um, if I need to pull something that's maybe not completely personalized, I might have someone, you know, maybe read the rules of a, a card game that they've never played before. And I'm following those directions and they have to read the directions, loud, clear speech, make sure I'm following them correctly. You know, keep an eye on what I'm doing. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, there are games like Scrabble Slam, which is a word building game with four cards. So you're doing four letter words and saying the word that you're creating as you're putting it down. I use... New York Times, they have a feature called What's Going On in This Picture. And I love it because it's really bizarre scenarios, but they're all real scenarios that come from news articles. And so I'll have someone first look at that picture and just, just describe what they see happening in there. And that's usually when they can maintain the loudness because they just, it's very concrete that I see, you know, a lady in a hot air balloon and she's holding some bananas. 
And then I'll say, okay, now this is an actual news story. So now I want you to try to predict what's really happening. Like, like, why did this make the news? Now, again, there's no right or wrong answer. And so a lot of times when we're not sure about our responses, we tend to lower our voice because we don't want to be loud and wrong. And usually that's when I have to really encourage people to just shout it out, even if you aren't sure if that's really the, the news story. And after that, we might create like a headline or a caption for that, that picture. Let's see, Tactus Therapy has a lot of great resources for uh, working single word level all the way through conversation. I use their uh, advanced naming app quite a bit. So that there's those unusual photos, like unusual food, unusual animals and people. Those are great for getting someone to, to think of how they're going to describe this bizarre scenario while they're maintaining their loudness and intent. There's the feature where it's a two people having a conversation, you have to like guess what is this person saying? Or there might be a scenario where you have to guess what someone's thinking. So those are good sentence level type activities to incorporate. Conversation app has different topics so the patient can pick their topic of interest and there's lots of questions to generate a conversation, giving opinions, et cetera, reminiscing, telling a story about a time when they experienced that. I mentioned workbooks before. I know sometimes that's a dirty word, but um, <laughs> but there are, again, you know, there are some things in there because I'm not working on cognition. I'm working on speech and I'm using these cognitive tasks in order to um, work the divided attention part of the speech. So I do use them sometimes for things like comparing and contrasting, like, you know, explain to me you know, how these things are similar, how they're different. Again, if, if someone is um, more impaired and they have a lot of difficulty at the single word level, then I might pull things like, hey, you know, I'm going to start this expression, you finish it, use your loud voice, because they might need that, that cue. They might not be able to just freely generate a lot of words on their own. But if I start something for them, then they can complete that. Um, word generation tasks are fun to do where you have a long word. And that, especially if that long word is related to something the patient's interested in and have them create as many short words as they can using the letters in the long word. That's another one where people will sometimes drop down as they're not sure of, of what they're saying. And it's a, a way that we can practice that loudness, that intent, even if your brain is really, really churning to, to figure those things out. Movie trivia or any kind of trivia based on someone's interest is uh, another way to work on loudness. And then I really love to use uh, comic strips. So I, the wordless comic strips that are a panel, scrambling those up, having someone sort them out and then tell the story again with the loud, clear voice with the intent as they're doing those. When it comes to uh, reading materials, I have this binder full of articles, just lots of different topics like things for people who like cars, animals, science, whatever. Those are really helpful because I usually ask people to bring in something to read from home. That's the ideal. If we're working on reading, to have something that they're really reading. But a lot of times people don't um, either remember to do to do that or they just you know, don't get around to picking up something to, to bring in to read. So I have my, my binder to the rescue and in those in that binder, again, because I have a lot of general information articles, I have some health related things, Parkinson's related things. And I love articles that have like strange human and strange animal facts. Those always generate a great conversation after if I'm having someone after they read it to retell that information again, using the intent. And then maybe their home part of their homework might be, okay, tell that, you know, that 
fat to a family member when you go home. Like, like one of the articles I use a lot is um, like why onions make you cry. So I was like, okay, at dinner tonight, I want you to tell someone why onions make you cry and say it with your, your loud, clear speech. With um, reading, I've also used um, monologues and scripts for like short two-person plays. Those can be fun to, to do because, again, we, we want to add some variety. If we're doing LSVT, we're with someone four hours a week for four weeks. So you can run out of things pretty quickly if you don't have a, a pretty good stash. And then finally, using YouTube for restaurant noises. When we get to the point where someone is, you know, able to maintain pretty good loudness in our quiet little speech box, then we'll keep the door open. We'll walk around the clinic, but it still doesn't always mimic that that constant noise that you might have when you're going out. So I, I do use the YouTube videos a lot, and they have they've got to talk over that noise. And I know that's the same principle that the Speech Five device uses is having noise because people will tend to increase their loudness when they have that that noise uh, present. And so those are some of my favorite things to, to do in my therapy sessions. Thank you, Libby. Can't remember the last time I've done actual speech tests and therapy, but I feel like I could actually figure it out now. <laughs> so, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. So for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to say people assign female at birth or assign male at birth, um, but keep in mind that biological sex is far more complicated than that. However, the research that's been done looking at males and females, I, I'm pretty sure has been based on the, on the binary. I had a chance to go to a conference. I participated actually in a, uh, a panel a couple of years ago, and it was called Women in PD. And what they talked about a lot was the differences that women tend to experience as far as like the symptoms. Of course, um, there's less frequency of, of women having uh, Parkinson's disease. Some of the things that really struck me that are relevant from a speech therapy standpoint is that usually women, um, females tend to be the caregivers, not the receivers of care. And females tend to live longer than males. So what happens is that, you know, Parkinson's is age related. So the the older you are, the, the higher your risk of getting Parkinson's disease. When we have older women, usually they don't have a the support system that uh, an older male is going to have. So as a result, um, females tend to end up in nursing homes more so than, than males, not have transportation to get back and forth to therapy. There are a lot of service delivery issues that can take place. And that was a big part of the, the discussion during that particular um, event. What struck me though, afterward, as we were talking and we're doing the Q&A, is that a lot of women were asking me about facial expression because with Parkinson's, there is a tendency to have what's called a masked face. So there's the rigidity, there's a lack of movement in the face, being hard to tell if someone, you know, what ex- emotions someone's experiencing. And several of the women in the audience were saying that that was a really huge problem for them and for their mental health is that they, they didn't have the facial expressions that they wanted to have. Now, our traditional speech therapy programs for Parkinson's are supposed to help to increase that facial expression. So as we increase the intent and we increase the loudness, we tend to get more animation. And several of the, the women had actually been through therapy and they say, yeah, I did the therapy and they told me that was going to help, but they, look, I still don't have my smile. And the reason that that smile is important is because as humans, we mimic what the other person in front of us is doing. So if we're talking to someone and they're smiling, then we tend to smile back. 
we get a lot of information about someone based on the, the changes in their facial expression. So it actually causes some interpersonal difficulties when someone does not have that ability to show those nuances in the face or to, to show that, that happiness. Um, it does come to intent, as I usually tell people when they ask me about that, I'll say, you know, you might feel like you're smiling, just like you might feel like you're being loud. But if you don't feel like that smile is over the top exaggerated, then it's probably not something that someone else is going to be able to perceive. I'll work with people sometimes, depending on their, their cognitive level, uh, as far as other ways that you can kind of express like how you're feeling if your face doesn't completely give that information. So the rest of your body language, the words that you use, your inflection of your voice, those are things also that can help to add emotion to the, to the content. All right. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all that. And this kind, of, this kind of goes back to the education that we need to do for family members, care partners, is the role of amplitude in Parkinson's disease. Amplitude is a huge issue with people with Parkinson's. And by amplitude, I mean bigness of movement. So Parkinson's tends to make everything smaller. When someone's walking, their steps are smaller. So there's that shuffling gait. There's a lack of arm swing. When it comes to talking, there's less movement of the lips, less movement of the tongue, less volume of the voice. All Again, all those things make things smaller. The handwriting tends to get smaller. Our role as therapists is to do the opposite, to make everything bigger, so big and loud. And of course, we have to emulate that as we're talking to people with Parkinson's because as humans, we mimic what someone else is doing. So if I'm talking with a soft voice and I'm not using gestures, and I'm not moving my body, the person that I'm talking to is going to be less likely to do the same to do that either. If I'm talking louder and I'm using a lot of gestures, then they're going to tend to do the same. People with Parkinson's, because of the, the way that our brain works, have difficulty with that feedback loop that lets them know how much they're moving. A person with Parkinson's will tell you, I feel like I'm absolutely shouting, but yet we only hear what's considered to be a normal voice. I make sure that the person with Parkinson's and their family members know that that person really thinks that they are talking loud enough and that it takes a shout's worth of effort to get to that normal loudness. Because without that, there's a lot of misunderstanding as far as why someone doesn't produce that, the loudness that they need to produce. So everything has to be over the top, whether it's the, the loudness, how you're walking, smiling, et cetera. All right. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yes. I think we covered everything on here, Libby. Is there any any final thoughts, anything else you'd like to share? So to kind of put everything together, I guess my the takeaway is that if someone is new to work with people with Parkinson's or if they want to add more to what they've been doing, first, you want to start with the basics, and that's getting the education, whether it's doing courses like LSVT Loud or Speak Out, reading information on the ASHA practice portal. There's a wealth of information on Parkinson's there. Special interest division groups have resources, doing a basic web search, Google Scholar search, going to the different organizations like the Parkinson's Foundation, Michael J. Fox Foundation, Davis Finney Foundation, and the American Parkinson's Disease Association, all ways of, of gathering information. From there, having some basic materials, you don't need a whole lot of fancy things. It helps to have a sound pressure level meter, stopwatch a way to measure fundamental frequency, which can be with a tuner or an app on an iPad or iPhone. Having an audio recorder is helpful so that people can hear 
how they sound in comparison to how the therapist sounds as far as loudness. Video recorder is nice to have. It's optional, but if you are noticing someone's getting more facial movement or if you want to give feedback as far as movement, the video recording is helpful. EMST, expiratory muscle strength training. Those devices are also very helpful for people with Parkinson's. So again, those are the basic things. And then from everything else, gathering whatever, but books, magazines, materials, puzzles, instruction manuals, cookbooks, whatever you can find that is of interest to the person that you're working with. The other thing is the advocacy. Really important that we help our patients understand what's happening to them, understand how they can best manage their symptoms, making sure they have access to good care. We have a lot of wonderful neurologists out there, but people with Parkinson's deserve to be seen at least once a year by a movement disorder specialist. And when we look at the research, it turns out that females tend to have less access to movement disorder specialists than males. And I don't know exactly the the reasons by that, but it probably has to go to the support system and having someone to advocate for them. That is a problem, but we do want to push for that um, for our patients. We want to make sure that they have access to all the tools that they need to be successful in managing their symptoms. So again, finding out about the classes, finding out how to practice at home, getting plugged into the organizations, plugged into volunteer who can help uh, people with Parkinson's. Letting patients know about the importance of signing up for clinical trials. So going to clinicaltrials.gov can get someone on the list to potentially participate in a trial. And those trials are not always just about medication. Sometimes people think if they're doing a trial, it's going to be that they're going to take some medications that might you know, make things better or might make things worse. But there are a lot of different things that are, are part of those trials. If you have... The idea for a support group, again, you just need the people and a place or a Zoom link in order to do that. Spreading the word, talk to the doctors, talk to the patients, talk to community members. That's the ways to get people to come to the group. The Parkinson's community is a pretty close-knit community. And word of mouth travels fast. So, for example, I have a private practice and pretty much Every client that I see through my private practice has come to me by word of mouth um, as opposed to really doing a lot of advertising. As far as topics, the best thing is to ask the people with Parkinson's, what do they want to hear about in a support group meeting? Do they want to know more about diet management, exercise, speech, voice, swallowing, pelvic health, Medicare, you know, whatever someone's interested in, you can probably find someone to come talk to your group about that particular topic. And of course, there's also the opportunity for people to talk amongst themselves because the best people to give advice about living with Parkinson's is going to be someone who is living with Parkinson's. And then finally, bring your passions, your enthusiasm into whatever you do. And this is not just for people with Parkinson's, but especially with this particular group. So in my case, I'm a personal trainer. I'm a health coach. So those are some of the things I bring into my therapy and I incorporate movement and wellness information. Maybe somebody has a passion for music and they bring that because that is also incredibly beneficial for people with Parkinson's. Art is important. So anything that you can bring into that, get involved with the volunteer organizations. I started out by volunteering for PD Gladiators, which is now Parkinson's Foundation, Georgia. And I wrote a monthly column that had rehab related news. Then from there, I started 
you know, showing up at events and helping out wherever I, I could. And that also helped me to get connected and really understand people with Parkinson's beyond my role as a therapist. The Parkinson's Foundation has Moving Day. That's their big annual event. So it's a walk that anyone can come to participate in, do some fundraising for. The American Parkinson's Disease Association has their Optimism Walk. And again, it's, you know, it's a fun event where you get to network and meet people. There are cycling events for people with Parkinson's. I mean, you name it. Everyone needs some volunteers. So if you want to get, you know, do that deep dive into the into the population and really increase your specialty, I think that's the best way to do it is, is by serving others. Awesome. Thank you so much, Libby. Thank you for sharing everything. Yes, it's been a pleasure. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.